Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Think back on the worst day of your life. How did your neighbors and friends respond? Did they come together to help out? Did they write on your Facebook wall? Maybe they sent cards or food? It's just human nature. Our newspaper has been full of these kinds of stories. But this, this is not one of them. Well, hey there. This is Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises, welcoming you back to a new season of late edition Crime Beat Chronicles. For this latest season, we wanted to highlight a series from the Roanoke Times that was first reported and produced in 2018 by journalists Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. A five-year-old child went missing in Dublin, Virginia, the spring of 2015, When his body was discovered days later in the family's septic tank, the mother was put on trial both by the court system as well as social media, where misinformation, accusations, and vengeance-fueled comments spread unchecked. It's a tragic story to be sure, but Roanoke Times reporters Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth went to great lengths to capture a well-rounded narrative that explores the ways a community ultimately failed one of their own, while also touching on broader implications like the effects of Facebook, the stigma of drug addiction in rural America, and the distortion of facts. This is the first of what will ultimately be seven episodes dropping every week, so make sure that you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts in order to make sure that you get the latest installments as they premiere. And once you're subscribed, you can explore our archives for the other true crime stories that we've got, as told by the journalists who originally reported them. We will make sure to include links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we heartily encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. Thanks for listening. And here is the first episode, Small Town Angel, which was first produced in 2018 by Roanoke journalists Jacob Demet and Robbie Korth. The Roanoke Times covers a region of about a dozen counties in mostly rural southwest Virginia. It's home to a city of about 100,000 people and a hodgepodge of small, tight-knit communities scattered around the Blue Ridge Mountains. It really is a pretty idyllic place. But as local reporters, we don't get to spend much time soaking up the good vibes at work. We tend to see people on the worst days of their lives. The day a college student goes to jail for causing a fatal car wreck. The day a mother learns her 13-year-old daughter has been murdered the day a local factory lays off 500 workers shortly before Christmas, or a teenager falls from the top of a local waterfall. It's difficult to call these families and pry into the nitty-gritty details of their personal hells, but we also get a front-row seat to the healing that usually happens next. Every time a family makes the news, our community mobilizes. We hold candlelight vigils, we pin ribbons to our shirts and put stickers on our cars, we make casseroles for each other and set up crowdfunding campaigns. We organize 5Ks and hold days of remembrance years later. We just come together. And I don't think Southwest Virginia is unique. Think back on the worst day of your life. How did your neighbors and friends respond? Did they come together to help out? Did they write on your Facebook wall? Maybe they sent cards or food? It's just human nature.
our newspaper has been full of these kinds of stories. But this, this is not one of them. This is the story of Noah Thomas, a five-year-old boy who, all the evidence suggests, wandered out of his home while his mother slept in 2015. He fell into a septic tank and drowned. But more than that, it's a story about his parents, who were blamed for his death, scorned by their community during their darkest hour, and tossed aside online as white trash drug addicts. She's no mother, she's a monster, somebody wrote on Facebook after Ashley White's son Noah Thomas went missing in 2015. They don't deserve a damn due process. They deserve a hanging, somebody else posted. We're not cherry-picking here. These comments are everywhere. She does not even deserve the air to breathe. Hope someone beats her ass when she is there. Sorry excuse for a human and for a mother. You are a sack of crap. I hope if you don't get the death penalty, the inmates in prison find out what you have done and make your life a living hell, just like it was for poor little Noah. That one ends with two exclamation marks. The response wasn't just online. In reporting this podcast, we've heard conspiracy theories and myths about what happened the day Noah died. There's been name-calling and stereotyping. I sat through five days of trial, heard all the evidence, talked to the prosecutor about the case, and I still walked away with a lot of unanswered questions about Noah's death. But the bigger question I just can't shake is what happened to this community? Why are people calling for a courthouse hanging instead of sending casseroles? From the Roanoke Times Newsroom, this is Septic. I'm Jacob Demet, reporting with Robbie Korth. There's a pretty ordinary place tucked in the mountains of southwest Virginia called Pulaski County. The county is home to a Facebook group that's basically a digital memorial for one of its favorite sons. It's called Noah Thomas, Our Small Town Angel. The page has 20,000 likes. For context, Pulaski County has about 34,000 residents. It's been two years since Noah Thomas, a cute little red-headed five-year-old boy, died. But the page here is still active. If you scroll back in history, the page started as you would expect. A group designed to help find Noah when he was missing. Here's one post from March 25th, 2015. Quote, If anyone knows anything, please, I'm begging you, call the Pulaski County Police Department. We need Noah home. Our hearts are broken. Noah, everyone is working hard to find you. Stay strong. I'm doing everything I can to help find you, and I will not stop until you are home. Hashtag pray for Noah. A few days later, Noah was found dead. That's when the page evolved into the kind of memorial that it is today. People started posting photos of candles. Here's one with a sign behind it that says, In honor of Noah Thomas. In more recent years, the page has been covered in Photoshop pictures of Noah. He's up in the clouds. He has wings. There are poems and posts filled with love for the boy who most of the writers probably even never met. But somewhere along the way, the page took a turn from remembrance to vengeance. It became overrun with those hate-filled comments about his parents, who many accuse of murder. Bring back the death penalty. It worked in the past, one commenter wrote. I ask our Lord for forgiveness, but I hate these monsters with a passion. I want them dead and anybody involved. I love you, Noah Thomas. That one is in all caps. Over on YouTube, there's more of the same. There's a bunch of slideshows made in Noah's memory. 
and even a few songs that locals wrote and performed just for him. Here's a taste of one of those by Marcus Allen, a.k.a. Don Dada King. Rest in peace, Noah Thomas. Gone too soon. Forever in our hearts. For nearly a week, I was hoping and praying for the best. And then yesterday, I found out there was no more breath. Inside your little body, someone had killed you. I'm not pointing fingers, but someone had killed you. A young and innocent five-year-old child. What is wrong with this world and the people living in it now? I don't know the whole story. All I know is rumors. And rumor has it both your mom and your dad did this to you. And if that's true, I hope the thought of what they did plays in their minds to their black... There's still a lot of things that we don't know about what happened to Noah on March 22nd, 2015, the day he died. Ashley was home alone at the time with her two children, five-year-old Noah and six-month-old Abigail. So we just have her story to go on and nobody else to corroborate it. With no evidence to the contrary, the investigators essentially took her word at face value, but it still didn't clear her of all guilt. Timing gets really important with these types of stories. Ours begins at 10 p.m. the night before, on March 21st. Ashley was in her room playing Clash of Clans on her phone. Noah was trying to watch cartoons on his TV. He couldn't find the remote control, so Ashley showed him how to change the channel on the box. Then she went back to bed. 6.10 the following morning. Paul wakes Ashley up like he always did. They laid in bed to smoke cigarettes before getting up. The routine was for Ashley to drive Paul to work, since he didn't have a car or a license. As Paul got ready, Ashley said the kids were sleepy. Abigail had been sick with bronchiolitis, and Noah didn't sleep well that night. So, she and Paul decided to leave the kids home alone for the 20 to 40 minutes it would take Ashley to drop him off and stop for gas and cigarettes. Both parents have since admitted this was a huge mistake, but we'll get more into that later. 6.55 a.m. Ashley drops Paul off. He punches into work while she returns home. Ashley said the kids were safe when she got back. She and Noah snuggled in the bed for a while, but he didn't want to watch the show Ashley had on, so he went into the living room to watch cartoons. Ashley fell asleep. 10.30 a.m. Ashley wakes up when Abigail begins crying. Ashley walked into the living room to find the TV on and the front door open. Her son Noah was gone. Now, this is about the time we wanted to introduce you to the child at the center of the story, but that's hard. Noah was only five years old when he died, so there aren't a whole lot of people who can speak on his behalf. Instead, we have a lot of family photos that eventually wound up in the evidence file. There's one of him holding a basketball trophy. His mom said he used to get in trouble for talking in school, and when that would happen, she would take away his trophy. He hated that. There's another one of him holding Abigail. He was nice to her, his mother said. He used to sneak into her bedroom at night just to watch her sleep. There are a lot of photos of Noah outdoors where neighbors say he played often. He lived near a farm and loved looking at all the equipment. We were also sent a couple videos that aren't in the evidence file. One was filmed on the first day Paul had to go off to work before Noah left for school. It shows Noah standing outside in a Batman t-shirt and a red backpack. He's fidgeting with the straps and looking at the camera kind of nervously. You know that look that even the most talkative kids have when they get stage fright even when just making a shaky cell phone video. Um, I love you, Daddy. I tell Mom, tell Dad. Um, I told Mommy to tell Daddy I love him. <laughs> Another video shows Noah inside his home, which looks like a pretty typical trailer. In the background, you can see it's about as clean as any normal living room. There's a photo of Noah as a chubby baby hanging on the wall above the television. This one was filmed during the summer as Ashley tried to teach Noah the difference between a pile of coins. Find me a quarter.
Quarter. Show it to the camera. Good job. All right. Find me a nickel. It's smooth one. It's smooth nickel. Smooth nickel. Smooth nickel. Find me a penny. Good job. Now find me a dime. Good job. And then there's the photo of Noah that looks like it was taken for a yearbook in front of one of those cheesy, faded gray backdrops. He's wearing a yellow t-shirt with a picture of the Incredible Hulk. He's got rustled up hair, big cheeks, and squinted eyes from smiling just a little too hard. His mouth stretches across his tiny face, but without cracking to show a single tooth. He's a very cute kid. This is a photo we all saw over and over again. It was splashed across the news the day Noah went missing. The search continues this morning in Pulaski County for a missing five-year-old boy. State police say Noah Thomas is believed to be in danger. He was last seen yesterday in the 5400 block of Highland Road in Dublin. Police say they believe he left on foot. Crews have continued their search throughout the night. Members of the community coming together to show their support. WSLS 10's Jade Hansen joins us live in Pulaski County. What's the latest on the search this morning, Jade? Well, Donna, police are out right now. They have been out throughout the morning, both on foot searching the area around missing five-year-old Noah Thomas's home. They are also been out in the air up in helicopters using infrared technology, trying to find some sign of the missing boy. Noah was last seen wearing a camo jacket, black and yellow pants, and Spider-Man rain boots. He's 3560 pounds. If you have any information, you are asked to call the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office. Mike Fleener was involved from the very beginning. He's the area's prosecutor, known as a Commonwealth's attorney in Virginia. He and Assistant Commonwealth's attorney Justin Griffith were at a conference in Richmond when they got a call that Noah was missing. The team immediately started handwriting court orders and faxing them from their hotel. The first voice you hear here is Fleener's. But I think one of the things that struck me about this case, obviously the community became very involved and invested in this case. And I think one of the reasons that had happened is because for four days, this was a missing child case. This was not a homicide. This was not a criminal case. This was a missing child. And, and there were probably several hundred people that volunteered and walked and called and put up posters. And so before we even really ever knew what happened to Noah, we have a huge county, well, the, the entire county and probably local region were really involved in and invested in his in the outcome. Several police involved in the search eventually testified at the trial. At least two officers, including Pulaski County Sheriff's Office Corporal Lucas Nestor, later testified that they looked into the septic tank. Here is that courtroom testimony. Uh, there was a uh, metal rod, I think it was Call a corner bead. It's about four foot in length. That was laying near the septic tank. I uh, picked that up. Investigator Queen took a hold of it and um, placed it down into the waste the liquid uh, and moved it around inside of the tank. Okay. Did you all detect anything when that was done? No. It didn't okay. strike anything. There was no resistance to the uh, pole inside of the tank. Other officers described a chaotic scene around the messy trailer where Noah was last seen. They said Abigail was crying, but Ashley didn't console the child. FBI Sergeant Courtney Merkel testified that it was full of cigarette smoke. 
it was full of cigarette smoke um, to the point where it was actually coming out of the door. It was, it was like being in a bar when they used to allow us to smoke in bars. Um, did you wear a mask? I did not wear a mask. Two of my team members who have uh, breathing issues had to wear a filter mask in order to search the, the residence. Officers were using a dog to search for the boy. The dog would eventually walk right over the septic tank lid, but it did not stop. The lid was closed, but not properly secured. This becomes important later. During all of her police interviews the first day of the search, Ashley lied about the time she left the kids home alone that morning. She told police that she took them along with her when she dropped Paul off at work. On day two, she came clean and told police what really happened. That's when red flags started to go up for prosecutors. But at that time, Fleeter and Griffith said they were still mostly concerned about finding the child. The search dragged on for four days. Fleener said they knew a five-year-old boy could only travel so far on his own. When they finished searching that likely area, Cruz went back to the home and started over again. On that second pass, they decided to take a more thorough look at the septic tank. Fleener and Griffith had returned from their conference by that point and were coincidentally at the scene conducting interviews when sanitation workers began emptying the tank. Here's Fleener describing that scene in a later interview. And there was a... Um, a gentleman who had the hose, and it, and at some point, he told one of the investigators, "I think I see a blue jacket." And I, and at that point, then other investigators gathered around, and it was determined that that Noah was in the in the septic tank. You know, there there have been a lot of rumors uh, about the condition that he was in, and. Um, Quite frankly, many of them are just false. You know, there have been rumors that he was, you know, he was found in a bag. There are rumors that he was found, you know, tied up and bound. There were, there were rumors that, that he had been beaten or he had been, uh, you know, had been stabbed or, or he had been. None of that is true. Not a single bit of that is true. He looked exactly as if he would have just simply fallen in there. He was, he was wearing, um, a blue jacket he had on a little miniature uh, sports jersey. I believe it was the San Diego Chargers uh, jersey. And um, rain boots. Rain boots. That's right. And I don't remember exactly what kind of pants he had, but they were little blue, blue, um, you know, pants. Uh, but he was not bound. He was not uh, injured. He was brought up out of the uh, out of the tank. And as is the uh, the procedure, um, you know, a, a, a body and remains will be taken to the uh, medical examiner's office in Roanoke for them to conduct an autopsy. And the remains are are uh, transferred in a in a bag, and so his remains were placed in that bag. Uh, one of the investigators and I actually then went down to the um, were present when they conducted the autopsy. Because of the substances in the septic tank and the and the, I guess the uh, you know the the really t uh, toxic nature of of uh, of the septic tank itself, they had to do the autopsy in a special room, or at least they had to initially take him into this special room, where where his body was just fully cleaned and cleansed. But uh, I was able to personally visualize his his body um, with the doctor and an investigator. And even though 
he, um, his body showed signs of, of um, you know, having been cold, like if we were out at a, you know, outside at a tech game or something, and, you know, sometimes your skin will get a little bit red or, or something. Uh, other than that, there were no visible um, injuries whatsoever, no bruising, no cuts, no damage to his body at all. So then at that point, um, th- that is the body then becomes your first real piece of evidence. Where do you think all the rumors that, that, that he was bound, tied up um, in a bag and drugged is a really common one? I think that uh, in, the, in the days of, of social, this is one of the very first big significant cases that this office has handled um, in the age of social media. And I think the fact that information is so readily available to the public and the public has such an easy uh, uh, opportunity to, to comment on it that that inaccurate information is just naturally going to occur. Uh, I, I can't tell you where it came from. Uh, neither the sheriff's office or my office ever made any comment or said anything which could even conceivably lead someone to believe that. Um, but uh, from that point on, um, there was never a, a belief in my mind, really, that uh, he had been deliberately murdered. Um, it would have, that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been an, an accidental, um, you know, form of homicide or a negligent homicide, if you will. But to have been a willful, deliberate, premeditated, first degree murder, the body itself told us that's not what happened. But that wasn't the storyline that was developing in the public airwaves at the time. Here's Nancy Grace. Well, there's more to it than him just being gone. His body was found in the septic tank, the family's septic tank, dead. Matt Deal, news director of WHIS. Matt, thanks for being with us. Here's my question. There's an open septic tank we're showing our viewers right now. Question, was their septic tank an open septic tank the child could have fallen into? Or was it a closed one so the child would have to be killed and put in it? Well, officially at this point in time, the authorities haven't revealed exactly what condition the septic tank was in when they found it. However, uh, industry experts from around the area have weighed in on the subject, and they've confirmed that even with the newer kind of septic tank lids that have a plastic lid, they're typically buried underground, and even if they are not buried, which they said this one was probably one that was a little more high-rise, they're typically bolted on with 6 to 10 bolts and very, very secure. So so uh, either, let me go to Mark Class, President, Founder, Class Kids Foundation, in addition to Matt Deal joining us, also with us, Dr. Tim Gallagher, pathologist, and Stacey Newman on the story. Mark Class, um, what's your take on this? Well, Nancy, the idea that she could have been asleep and somebody came and took the boy, murdered him, and then put him in the septic tank is absurd on the face of it. The other scenario, that he somehow wandered over to the septic tank, opened it, climbed inside, and pulled the lid closed behind him is also completely absurd. That leaves one possibility. That leaves the family members and those who are closest to him. Ashley was eventually charged with a crime but it's not what you would expect if you were to talk to people on the street or listen to the news back then. 
Both she and Paul were charged with two counts of child abuse and neglect for the time they admitted to leaving the kids home alone when Ashley took Paul to work. The kids were safe when Ashley returned home, so Paul was off the hook from then on. Ashley received an additional and more serious count of child abuse and neglect leading to injury for the time she said she fell asleep and Noah went missing. There was another charge, and just a warning that the name of this one is confusing, and frankly is probably partly to blame for the misunderstanding that's still so prevalent. Ashley was charged with felony homicide, which is different from what you might think. In Virginia, felony homicide is a charge resulting from when a person dies accidentally while someone is committing another crime. So the prosecution's theory was never that Ashley killed her son and put him in the tank. Instead, it was that he died accidentally while she was committing another crime, child neglect. And the felony homicide charge didn't stick. A judge tossed it out before it even got to a grand jury. What was left were the child abuse and neglect charges. Here's Assistant Commonwealth's Attorney Justin Griffith. Once we boiled down what we thought Ashley's was the most truthful version that Ashley gave us, we had evidence that, per her own statements, she left a five-year-old and a five-month-old alone in a house. So then we had to determine, is that in and of itself a crime? Were the outlets plugged, the doors locked, the cabinets locked? Were they confined to one room? Was there a monitor? Was the neighbors supposed to watch to see if they came out? And, and none of that was the case. It was actually the opposite. You know, the, the house that they were left in, when we broke that down, um, it was dangerous for a five-year-old and a five-month-old, even if both parents were awake and watching the child. Um, at trial, you know, the court learned that there was used drug wrappers laying in the floor, there were cigarettes laying in the floor, there was bleach left on the floor, there was calamine lotion laying around on the floor, there was unsmoked marijuana in the house. So that, we thought, alone, being left alone in a house of that condition was criminal. Then when we speak to the parents, we learned front doorknob didn't work properly. They knew that. They told us that. Noah would go, would know, knew how to open and close the door on his own. We know that because they told us. He would want to go outside. They, we know that because they told us. We weren't filling in the gaps with our own theories. We were using the parents' words that they told us. And then we realized, you know, we're going to be able to convict both of the parents for a Class 6 felony um, child neglect for, for leaving them alone. And then we had to analyze... You know, once Ashley comes back to the house, according to her own words, both of the children were alive and well. We have no evidence to rebut that from any other outside source. So at that point, once Ashley returns, Paul kind of becomes off the criminal hook because Ashley's at home with the children. So Paul was charged with those two counts for leaving the infant and Noah alone. So then we had to focus on well, how do we factor in Noah passing away, knowing where he was? You know, what was Ashley's version of that? Well, she didn't simply say, you know, she fell asleep and she woke up. She described intentionally wanting to fall asleep, being in the bedroom. And then you factor in the front doorknob, the fact he goes outside, the fact she knew there was a septic tank there. We know this because she tells us all this. He had stood on that lid before. She had yelled at him for doing that. She had told him not to stand on that lid before. 
Um, it wasn't just simply a mother falling asleep. It was a mother choosing to render herself in a condition that was unable to supervise her child in a dangerous environment. And we did conclude that because she rendered herself in that condition, and then he ultimately went outside and she knew he was capable of doing that, we were going to be able to convict her of a third count and a higher count of child neglect that resulted in his death. If you talk to most people in Pulaski all these years later, you're not going to hear those legal nuances. What you'll hear sounds much more sinister, and many will likely tell you involves murder. We're going to explore these misconceptions, where they came from, what they've done to this community, and Ashley. We're also going to raise a lot of questions about a parent's responsibility to care for their children, and when an accident becomes something else. As we reported this story, it was abundantly clear that this community has still not healed. There is still so much anger festering over this case. But not everyone has taken to the internet to deal with their grief. Carlos Tapias, who runs the plastics factory where Paul Thomas worked, had a child around Noah's age when he died. Carlos went to the boy's funeral and was so moved that he promised Noah that day he would do something to improve the community. He organized a small team and began quietly working away. Eventually, they decided to turn an old abandoned elementary school into a youth center. Kids would get bused there after school. It would host sports teams, robot clubs, and tutors. The center would also focus on helping young parents struggling at home to keep their heads above water. I think it's very difficult to judge another parent. <laughs> That's Tina Martin, who Carlos um, hired to run the Pulaski Community too. Youth Center. We asked her about what she it thinks of Ashley. Difficult. And I think the best that we can do instead of judging the situation is, you know, look and see what we could, you know, what, what can we have done to help, you know, make that easier? Because being a parent is difficult. You know, I, there's been times I've had crying babies and, you know, and sometimes all you can do is sit down and cry with them and just pray, Lord, <laughs> you're going to have to give me just a few more minutes of peace and help me walk through this. And you have to think when you have young parents that maybe don't have that capability of slowing down and thinking through things, or if they don't have someone that they can look to, I'm sure it, it could be very bleak. And I'm not really, I've never, thank goodness, been in that position to where I haven't had someone to be there to help me. She gave us a tour of the youth center late last year. At the end, Tina took us out a pair of double doors to a grass field in front of the building. She said that's where they're planning to build a memorial to Noah. They are going to be putting the landscaping. There'll be like a little wall here. All of this and around this corner, those students will be doing landscaping in. And our hope is around this corner and kind of in this little nook in this flower bed is where we would really like to put um, our Noah statue and some different, you know, memorial things out here. So this kind of this whole area over here will be a nice memorial garden area. And we're hoping to put some of the nice big rocks in where the students can come out, have a seat, really take part in it. I don't want it to be one of those things that you just look at because he was a child. Kids don't just look at the, you know, they, we want it to be interactive. So we're hoping to put some nice pavers in, let the kids really take part in being a part of the, you know, the uh, area over here. Tina is amazingly patient and dedicated to this project. She clearly feels for Noah, though she never met him. But she said that dealing with grief is what this entire project is about. I think that it was just grief. I think that most everyone that I've encountered, grief was grief, you know, even for the parents, the situations that they have placed themselves in. You know, it's, um, 
I know that's bound to be difficult for them as well. But I also look at things from the other end, and, you know, I try to look at God's grace, and I know that that's something they have to live with every single day. So I'm not sure that it's my right, you know, to to really kind of pick that up and be like, oh, yeah, they need, you know, because I, I would certainly think that they pay for this every single day. I, I would think that that's something that will never escape them. Yeah. Just from where we sat, we get Facebook comments on the things we write and, and right. things like that. Do you think that that digital sort of reaction is an accurate mirror of this community? I think that it gets exploited tremendously, and I think that sometimes we, instead of slowing down like we should and getting our thoughts in order out of those emotions, we're very quick to hit the keys and to overshare. I don't think that people would say half of the things that they say on Facebook um, in person to other people, and I think there's something to be said for that time of quiet to just think through before you say things. So... I don't I don't think that has a whole heartbeat on our community. I really don't. I think that a lot of that is, and, and grief sometimes makes you angry. I don't know that that's an accurate, you know, to how most people feel. I think that sometimes that's an outlet for people, probably not the most appropriate outlet, um, but we tend to get the raw end of that and maybe not the thought through, you know, conclusion. So here we are kind of a few, couple, few years separated Right. Um, is what you're doing, is that um, the next stage of grief, I guess? I hope so. I hope that, that everyone will get to that point where instead of, you know, having the anger and, and continuing, to, continuing in the grief, you know, I want to see a healing process as I feel like, you know, Mandy and some of the other folks I'm sure in their family want to see that healing process. And I think this is part of it. And through that grief and sadness that I'm sure we'll all always feel, I want to know that something good came out of this, and I know that my employer, that's very important to him. He wants to make sure that that young man's life is not lost in vain. Something good, maybe we save, even if it's just one other life. One life is so important, so I think that this is how we're dealing with our grief. We're trying to get to that other side and find that healing with it. And hopefully the community will too. Septic is produced by Robbie Korth and me, Jacob Demet. Music comes to us courtesy of Mike Gangloff and Matt Payton. All courtroom audio is obtained from the Pulaski County Circuit Court Clerk's Office after a request to Judge Bradley Finch. This podcast is about presenting an accurate account of the death of Noah Thomas and his parents' legal saga. All audio has been edited for brevity and clarity. For pictures, original documents, and other extras, visit septicpodcast.com and feel free to send us any feedback at septic at roanoke.com This is a copyrighted podcast of the Roanoke Times. All rights reserved. Contents may not be disseminated without permission. Well, thank you for listening to the first of what will ultimately be seven episodes. So uh, please subscribe wherever you get your shows to guarantee that you'll get the latest installments as they premiere. Also explore our archives for other true crime stories as told by the journalists who originally reported them. We'll include links to relevant articles from Roanoke.com in the show notes. And finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support the Roanoke Times or whichever newspaper it is that serves your community.